Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're sure to be captivated by. And today, Bob recalls one particular day during his 13-week stay in Marine Boot Camp. We had had a long day. And we were tired and very hungry. To make matters worse, we were one of the last platoons to get into the mess hall for dinner. As we filed in, you could see dusk was coming from the setting sun. The sun was rising when we started our day. After heaping my tray with all the food I could, I stood at attention along the table and waited for the command to sit and eat. Sergeant Calvert hollered in his deep and gravelly voice, But and our butts hit the chair. Get up, he said. Get back to attention. Let's try that again. All I could think about was, oh, God, just let's get going here, man. This is time to eat. I just wanted to eat. He said, I want to hear one sound of 80 butts hitting the seat, not 80. But hey, seat. We repeated this exercise again and again until he was satisfied. What a jerk, I thought, as I sat down. Finally, he gave the command to eat at attention. We were not to look around or talk. Only then did he give us the command to eat. Staring down at the tray and shoveling food in, I wanted something to drink. In front of the recruit sitting next to me was a metallic pitcher containing the Kool-Aid. With very little motion, I tilted my head and imperceptibly whispered the words, Kool-Aid, when all of a sudden boots came charging down the length of the table rattling the trays with each stomp. Standing before me on top of the table with his boots straddling my tray was Sergeant Calvert. He looked down at me with the visage of a wrathful god. I thought he was going to kick my mouth in with the polished leather toe of his boot. I froze for a moment. I didn't know what to do. And then he told me, cursing and yelling with a thunderous voice, he said, are you suffering from rectal cranial inversion, Private McClellan? Is there something about the English language that you don't understand? You have disobeyed my orders. And for that, McClellan, you will pay. You will all pay. Now get up, all of you, and get out of here right now. Everybody fall outside into formation. Do you think you're at the slop shoot? This is no damn social club. Get outside and get into formation. One recruit ran out trying to shove food in his mouth until Staff Sergeant Fisher knocked the tray out of his hands, sending it and the food to the deck. Standing in the middle of the stampede, fleeing through the doorway, he knocked trays out of the hands of privates trying to poach food. I ran past the garbage can, knocked all the food out of the tray. 
stacked it on the wash rack and lined up in formation. I learned that day that though the Marine Corps has to feed us, they don't have to give us any time to eat. It was at moments like this that I hated Sergeant Calvert the most. In all platoons, there's always one DI that is the most dreaded, feared, and despised drill instructor of all. In platoon 3095, that man was Sergeant Calvert. He was short, he was curt, monosyllabic, completely unsympathetic to our needs, and spoke with a deep, gargling voice that seemed to come up from his bowels. His diction was perfect, though. He had a passion for hard consonants and long, long vowels. Each curse that left his lips would be elongated as if it was a musical note. He was indifferent to life under his command and completely intolerant of individuals. I think the only book he'd ever read was the guidebook for Marines. Wearing his gray Marine Corps sweatshirt this morning was a sign that we would spend the day in hell. He approached me and with his smoky bare brim kept pushing the edge of it into my forehead while he upbraided me for thinking that his orders don't apply to me. He said that God had personally picked him to make my life as miserable as possible until I learned to follow directions. You seem to believe that my commands to eat and attention don't apply to you, Private McClellan. You must think you're someone very special. Is that what your mother told you? That you're very special? Very precious? Maybe she wouldn't approve of the way we do things down here. Maybe she should come down here and help you pack and take you home with her. Well, you, Private McClellan, are no longer important anymore. The Marine Corps is. No one's coming to rescue you. You asked to be here. We didn't ask you to come here. We didn't ask you to join. You will regret your attitude. Looking up to my face, the bill of his smoky bear kept tapping the bridge of my nose with its edge while he stuttered and screamed curses at me. Inches from my face, I had to stand staring straight ahead and feel the spray of his saliva spew out of his mouth, scattered among his curses. I stood his attention, standing as tall as I could to make him see he was smaller than I was and shorter than I was, and keeping my eyes looking straight ahead, I didn't flinch. And at that moment, all I was thinking about was shoving my hand down his throat and ripping his larynx out when he stopped abruptly and walked behind me. I stood waiting for something to happen, but nothing did. I could not see where he was nor what he was doing. So in a few seconds, I just decided to relax a little bit. And within seconds of that, I could feel his breath coarsely whispering into my ear from behind me. With his lips barely touching my earlobe, he cooed. You don't like me, do you, McClellan? I think you hate me. I think you hate me, don't you, Private McClellan? No, sir, I shouted in protest. He whispered to me, it breaks my heart to know that you're upset with me, Private McClellan. I thought we'd be good friends down here, you and me. Maybe you disapprove of my instructions. Am I hurting your feelings, Private McClellan? Are you going to write and tell your mother? No, sir, I yelled again in protest. Coming around from behind me, he once again pushed that brim into my forehead. And inches from my eyes, he said, I can see right now, Private, you are thinking of how much you would like to hurt me, aren't you? 
No, sir, I said. Oh, yes, you are, McClellan. Do I look stupid to you? You look stupid to me. And when we come back, we're going to find out what happens to Bob McClellan and Sergeant Calvert. The McClellan Files, here on Our American Stories. Turn to Bob McClellan's story about his Marine drill instructor, Sergeant Calvert, who made his life at Marine boot camp a living hell. I think you're a real dumb sh- private. So let me make something real clear to you. Anytime you want a piece of me, you go for it. Look around first before you do and say goodbye to the world you knew. Because if you ever raise your hand towards me, you will never leave this base. With his voice rising louder and louder with every syllable, he hollered, I will break you like an egg. And after I'm done with you, I'll keep rotating your ass back for as long as it is necessary. Then widening his eyes, he looked through me saying, and you will never, ever, ever leave here. Do you understand me, Private? Yes, sir, I answered. I wanted to get under his skin in the worst way. But I knew I'd pay a terrible price for such foolishness. Boot camp is designed to ensure recruits are never right and never win. There is no victory here. My best outcome would be to survive it and head somewhere else. So I just took it. Standing in platoon formation, he ordered us to right face. He said we were going to go on a little run to help us digest our meals. He didn't want us to get fat and lazy and ruin our figure in a Marine Corps uniform. I was up front since I was one of the taller recruits, and up till now my wrestling experience kept me up with the challenge of conditioning. We headed out across the base down the road to the Naval Training Center at the end of the San Diego airport. When we turned onto this road, I knew he had lied to us. Passing by the Naval Training Center, We had to suffer the indignation of seeing sailors smoking, eating candy bars, drinking Cokes, and hollering insults at us. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. As we ran by in a cloud of dust, they gathered along the fence, yelling to us about how stupid we looked and what a bunch of dumbasses we were to join the Corps. 
At that moment, I thought maybe my father was right. I might have been a lot happier in the Navy. The sun was almost gone, and in the dim light, we meandered along every road on the base as fatigue began to take its toll. I could hear men behind me gasping for air. My own chest was heaving from breathing deeply to get as much air into my blood as possible. My head tilted forward and my shoulders started to slouch. My legs were tired and I was running out of gas. Soon, a couple men fell out to vomit their partially digested dinner, while a couple others just collapsed and sat down alongside the road. One was crying. For every man who fell, two recruits had to fall out, help him up, and carry him if necessary. Marines leave no man behind, and we will finish with everyone in the platoon returning, dead or alive, or we will do this all night. Sergeant Calvert? Oh, he was impeccably dressed in his starch utilities, showing no sign of fatigue or perspiration. He continued running, leaving a trail of recruits on the road behind him, with Sergeant Fisher kicking the behinds of the slackers to get off their butts and get back into the platoon. To inspire us, Sergeant Calvert called for a song whose rhythmic chant would sing out to all that Platoon 3095 was coming to an obstacle course near you. To instill pride in us, we sang, If I die in a combat zone, box me up and send me home. Pin my medals across my chest and tell my girl I did my best. Sound off. One, two. Sound off. Three, four. But as more and more men were falling behind, he said he was ashamed of us. He said we were a disgraceful and useless mob unworthy of dying in battle. So he changed the cadence to a song of shame and humiliation that turned the heads of the Marines within distance to hear us sing the Mickey Mouse Club song. And we sang, Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? M-I-C. K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E My chest was heaving and my lungs were burning. My feet were starting to shuffle. I could not believe I was still running. I was tempted so many times just to pull out of the formation and sit down, but I knew that dropping dead was preferable than having Sergeant Calvert's wrath riding me every day. But I was at the end. Soon, all I could think about was going home. I remembered what our DIs told us when we arrived. They told us when you think you can't go another step, you have another 30% left. Your mind will quit long before your body does. It is my job to take you to that 90% of that 30. I could not go any further, yet we just kept running along the road. Quitting was the only word that was on my mind. I thought the hell with him. I just can't go any farther. He then he ordered us to march, and we slowed down to a normal pace. We continued to march to allow all the stragglers to catch up, and when everyone was present, he gave us the command to halt. Sucking air deep into my lungs, I looked back down the road and realized that he took me far farther than I had ever been or ever even willing to go. I was done miles back, and yet here I am. Margins, boundaries, limitations, they have no place here. We're being trained for conditions and situations that are going to make us do the inconceivable. We weren't some football team at practice. This is not about conditioning, but about endurance and character. 
we were being trained to exceed our own expectations of ourselves and those of our enemies. The bar was going higher. My clothes were soaked with perspiration. I looked like I'd been standing in the rain. There was not a dry spot on my body. Calling us to attention, he stood in front of us, and looking past him, I recognized the sand pits. Oh, Jesus Christ, he's not serious. I thought he's not going to make us do this tonight after all he's put us through. What a son of a bitch. What a bastard. Sergeant Calvert found another 30% in us, and he wanted it. I knew it was going to be a very long night. I think, after a little run like that, you people could use some time at the beach. So we're going to play some games in the sand. You probably want to drink beer and play volleyball. Maybe you want to walk around and look at the girls in their bikinis. But not today, privates. Today there will be no bikinis on the beach. Because there are no bikinis in the jungles where you are going. Forward, march moving us into the deep sand he commanded. Instead, you're going to do squat thrusts, 50 count, all together, face half right. Ready, go! After hundreds of squat thrusts in the sand, to push-ups and sit-ups, we jumped up and down in the ankle-deep sand. Sand was everywhere, in our boots, mouths, nostrils, ears, trousers, and down in our underwear. It was all glued to our bodies with perspiration. A crust of sand covered our clothes like an extra layer of skin. The sand, wet from perspiration, clung to our bodies from head to toe. Most of us were unrecognizable with a thick layer of sand caked on our faces and necks. When we were finally exhausted, which didn't matter to him at all, he told us to slither on our bellies like other lower forms of life for 50 yards across the sand. Now it was pouring into our utilities and down into our t-shirts and boxers and socks. Grains of sand coated the inside of my mouth and stuck up in between my teeth and cheeks. I couldn't even spit it out because my mouth was so dry. It was dark now and late by the time we marched back to our huts. We were told the head would be closed until one hour after taps and we were to sleep in our utilities. Then I desperately needed water and a toothbrush. I climbed into my bunk with sand pouring out of my clothes onto my sheets. I cursed the day that Sergeant Calvert was born, and I cursed his mother too. When taps blew and the lights clicked off, I took a couple seconds to say the prayer that I said every night. Oh God, when will this be over? Help me get out of here. And please God, send Sergeant Calvert to hell. And then I just passed out. And what storytelling, folks, and that's Bob McClellan and the McClellan Files. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look it up, and you'll see all of his work there. And you can pick up great stories in the middle. And my goodness, even in the middle, this one stands. And some lines that struck me about Sergeant Calvert. He took me farther than I'd ever been. This is not about conditioning, but endurance and character. And we were being trained to go beyond our expectations and our enemies. And how it ended. I cursed the day Sergeant Calvert was born. I cursed him. I cursed his mother, too. The McClellan Files, Bob McClellan's story, so many Marines' story, here 
on Our American Stories. our American stories and it's time for our This Day in History as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale can get to you. Go to their great online courses at hillsdale.edu and again on This Day in History the world lost one of the finest comedic geniuses of the 20th century. His name was Jerome Horowitz while that name might not be familiar his nickname is bound to ring a bell Here's Jesse. Jerome Lester Horowitz was better known by his stage name, Curly Howard. He was an American comedian and vaudevillian actor, best known as the most outrageous and energetic member of the Three Stooges, which also featured his older brothers, Moe and Shimp Howard, along with Larry Fine. An untrained actor, Curly was known for his high-pitched voice and vocal expressions like... And and who could forget (laughs) Curly Howard was born Jerome Lester Horowitz in the Bensonhurst section of the Brooklyn Borough of New York City of Lithuanian Jewish ancestry. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups. Automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. He was the fifth of five Horowitz brothers. Because he was the youngest, his brothers called him Babe to tease him. Although when his older brother Shemp Howard married Gertrude Frank, who was also named Babe, the brothers called him Curly to avoid confusion. We're not ordinary people. (laughs) We're morons. A quiet child, Curly rarely caused problems for his parents, something his older brothers Moe and Shemp excelled in. Hey, I got 
had an idea. Shut up, I don't want to hear it. He was a mediocre student, but excelled as an athlete on the school basketball team. He didn't graduate from high school, but kept himself busy with odd jobs and constantly followed his older brothers, whom he idolized. He was also an accomplished ballroom dancer and singer who regularly turned up at the Triangle Ballroom in Brooklyn. When Curly was just 12 years old, he accidentally shot himself in the left ankle while cleaning a rifle. Mo rushed him to the hospital and saved his life. The wound resulted in a noticeably thinner left leg and a slight limp. He was so frightened of surgery that he never had the limp corrected. While with the Three Stooges, he developed his famous exaggerated walk to mask the limp on screen. Curly was interested in music and comedy and would watch his brothers Shemp and Moe perform as Stooges in Ted Healy's vaudeville act. He also liked to hang out backstage, although he never participated in any of those early routines. He married his first wife, Julia Rosenthal, on August 5, 1930, but the couple had their marriage annulled shortly afterwards. Curly's first on-stage break was as a comedy musical conductor in 1928 for the Orville Knapp Band. Moe later recalled that his performances usually overshadowed those of the band. Are you trying to give me the double talk? Though Curly enjoyed the gig, he watched as Moe, Shimp, and Larry Fine made it big as some of Ted Healy's stooges. Vaudeville star Healy had a very popular stage act in which he would try to tell jokes or sing, only to have his stooges wander on stage and interrupt or heckle him during the performance. Funny, eh? Yeah! <laughs> well, laugh this off. Meanwhile, Healy and company appeared in their first feature film, Rube Goldberg's Soup to Nuts, in 1930. Shemp became tired of Ted Healy's alcoholism and violent temper and had a falling out that caused him to leave the Three Stooges for another opportunity in show business. With Shemp gone, Moe suggested that Curly fill in for the role of the third stooge. But Healy felt that Curly, with his thick chestnut hair and elegant waxed mustache at the time, didn't look funny enough for the role. If at least you don't succeed, keep on sucking till you do succeed. Curly left the room and returned minutes later with his head shaven and got the role. In 1934, MGM was grooming Healy up as a solo comedian in feature films, so Healy dissolved his Stooges act to pursue his own career. The team of Howard, Fine, and Howard then renamed their act The Three Stooges. <laughs> That same year, they signed on to appear in two real comedy short subjects for Columbia Pictures. The Stooges soon became the most popular short subject attraction, with Curly playing an integral part in the trio's work. You can't eat me. I'm too tough. I'll give you indigestion. Curly's childlike mannerisms and natural comedic charm made him a hit with audiences, especially with children. He was known in the act for having an indestructible head, which always won out by breaking anything that it hit. Despite having no formal acting training, his comedic skills were exceptional. Many times, directors would simply let the camera roll freely and let Curly improvise. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. By the time the Stooges hit their peak in the late 1930s, their films had almost become vehicles for Curly's unbridled comic performances. Classics like A Plumbing We Will Go in 1940, We Want Our Mummy in 1938, An Ache in Every Steak in 1941, and Cactus Makes Perfect in 1942 displays his ability to take inanimate objects like food, tools, or pipes and turn them into ingenious comic props. <laughs> When Curly forgot his lines, that merely allowed him to improvise on the spot so that the take could continue uninterrupted. Come on, come on. By 1944, Curly's energy began to decline. A Curly whose voice was deeper and his actions slower. 
After filming of the feature-length Rockin' in the Rockies in December of 1944, he finally checked himself into a cottage hospital in Santa Barbara, California, and was diagnosed with extreme hypertension, a retinal hemorrhage, and obesity. Half-Wits Holiday, released in 1947, would be Curly's final appearance as an official member of the Stooges. During filming on May 6, 1946, Curly suffered a severe stroke while sitting in director Jules White's chair, waiting to film the last scene of the day. When Curly was called by the assistant director to take the stage, he didn't answer. Mo went looking for his brother. He found Curly with his head dropped down to his chest. Mo later recalled that his mouth was distorted and that he was unable to speak, only cry. Curly partially recovered and with his hair regrown, made a brief cameo appearance as a train passenger barking in his sleep in the third film after his brother Shemp's return. Hold that line. What is that, a cocky spaniel? I think it's just a spaniel. It was the only film that featured Larry Fine and all three Howard brothers, Moe, Shemp, and Curly, simultaneously. Still not fully recovered from his stroke, Curly met Valerie Newman and married her on July 31, 1947. Although his health continued to decline after the marriage, Valerie gave birth to a daughter, Janie, in 1948. Later that year, Curly suffered a second massive stroke, which left him partially paralyzed. He used a wheelchair by 1950 and was fed boiled rice and apples as part of his diet to reduce his weight and blood pressure. In February of 1951, he was placed in a nursing home where he suffered another stroke a month later. On January 18, 1952, Curley died at the age of 48. He was given a Jewish funeral and laid to rest at Home of Peace Cemetery in East L.A. Curley's off-screen personality was the antithesis of his on-screen manic persona. An introvert, he generally kept to himself, rarely socializing with people unless he had been drinking, which he would increasingly turn to as the stress of his career grew. Never an intellectual, Curley simply refrained from engaging in crazy antics unless he was in his element, with family, performing, or intoxicated. Curley found constant companionship in his dogs and often befriended strays wherever the Stooges were traveling. He would pick up homeless dogs and take them with him from town to town until he found a home somewhere else on the tour. When not performing, he would usually have a few dogs waiting for him at home as well. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, all the truth, and nothing but the truth? Huh? Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, all the truth, and nothing but the truth? Are you trying to give me the double talk? Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, all the truth, and nothing but the truth? Why don't you answer him? He's talking big Latin. I don't know what he's saying. He's asking you if you swear. No, but I know all the words. He's asking you if you'll swear to tell the truth. Truth is stranger than fiction, Judgey Woody. <laughs> Kindly address this court as your honor and take the oath. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, all the truth, and but the truth? Certainly. What have I got to lose? Take the stand. Where do I put it? No, no. Take the stand. I got it. Now what will I do with it? This is our American stories. Great job on that, Jesse. As always, the life of Curly. We do it all here. We promised you that when we started. We keep doing it. One of the great comic geniuses of the 20th century, no doubt. And for centuries beyond. One of the great physical comedians of all time. Perfect timing when he spoke. 
This is our American story, the life of Jerome Horowitz. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And, well, we love to surprise you with stories and books like the last one, and it's the story of the beard. And I didn't know beards had a story, but they did, and they've come in and out of fashion through the centuries, a reflection of masculinity, and then not. And right now we're in this point where my wife says stubble is the perfect middle ground between the beard and the non-beard. And so... Trying to keep stubble is another game. It's impossible. I'm trying to do the stubble thing, and it, every time I get the stubble just right, one day later, it's turning into a beard, and then I shave it, and then I have nothing. And so it's very difficult. I'm in a, I'm in a pickle right now. Well, this day in history is what we love to do each and every day here on Our American Stories. And this segment, as always, is brought to, brought to you by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all things that matter in life. In this feature, you're about to meet someone you've definitely heard of, or at least the characters in his books. But it's likely you only know the Disney version, and not his original creation. Today we feature A.A. A. Milne. Winnie the Pooh by A.A. A. Milne, dedicated to her. Hand in hand we come, Christopher Robin and I, to lay this book in your lap. Say you're surprised. Say you like it. Say it's just what you wanted. Because it's yours. Because we love you. Alexander Milne, or A.A. Milne, creator of Winnie the Pooh, was born in 1882. Milne was the youngest of three sons who taught himself to read at the age of two. He began writing humorous pieces as a schoolboy and continued to do so while attending Cambridge. In 1903, he left Cambridge and went to London to write. Although he was broke by the end of his first year, he persevered and supported himself until 1906, writing detective stories and plays. In 1913, he married his wife, Daphne, and two years later, though a pacifist, went to France to serve in World War I. In 1920, the couple's only son, Christopher Robin, was born, and they purchased a farm in Sussex. A nearby forest inspired the hundred-acre wood where Winnie the Pooh's adventures would be set. Milne published two volumes of poetry that would inspire his two Pooh books. When We Were Very Young became the first and was published in 1924. That was followed by Now We Are Six in 1927. Read by the official voice of the Pooh books, the great Peter Dennis. Christopher Robin said this about Dennis. 
Peter Dennis has made himself Pooh's ambassador extraordinary, and no bear has ever had a more devoted friend. So if you want to meet the real Pooh, the bear I knew, the bear my father wrote about, listen to Peter. Here's a verse: "The good little girl." It's funny how often they say to me, "Jane, have you been a good girl? Have you been a good girl?" And when they have said it, they say it again. Have you been a good girl? Have you been a good girl? I go to a party. I go out to tea. I go to an aunt for a week at the sea. I come back from school or from playing a game. Wherever I come from, it's always the same. Well, have you been a good girl, Jane? It's always the end of the loveliest day. Have you been a good girl? Have you been a good girl? I went to the zoo and they waited to say, "Have you been a good girl? Have you been a good girl?" Well, what did they think that I went there to do? And why should I want to be bad at the zoo? And should I be likely to say if I had? So that's why it's funny of Mummy and Dad this asking and asking in case I was bad. Well, have you been a good girl, Jane? When Christopher Robin was about a year old, he received a stuffed bear as a present. The child soon accumulated a collection of similar animals, which inspired Milne to begin writing a series of whimsical stories about the toys. Christopher Robin's actual stuffed toys are now under glass in the New York Public Library, where 750,000 people visit them every year. Winnie the Pooh was published in 1926, and The House at Pooh Corner. In 1928, Ernest Shepherd marvelously illustrated the books, using Christopher Robin and his animals as models. After Milne's death in 1956, the rights to the Pooh characters were sold to the Walt Disney Company, which has made many Pooh cartoon movies, a Disney Channel television show, as well as Pooh-related merchandise. It is very important to note. That the Pooh characters in Milne's books have only superficial commonalities with the Disney's repackaged product. All the complexity and wonderful character development is replaced with an all-smiling, all-the-time bland band of one-dimensional Disney-fied rip-offs. Forbes magazine ranked Winnie the Pooh the most valuable fictional character in 2002. Winnie the Pooh merchandising products alone had an annual sales of more than 5.9 billion dollars. In 2005, Winnie the Pooh generated 6 billion dollars, a figure surpassed by only Mickey Mouse. For too long, Winnie the Pooh has been relegated to children's bookshelves and Disney children's cartoons. But what you probably don't know is that A. A. Milne didn't write the stories and poems for children. He intended them for the child within you and me, and countless millions of others. In the last Pooh book, The House at Pooh Corner, Milne writes the final dialogue between Pooh and a maturing Christopher Robin in a way that only an adult could connect with. To be candid, I cry every time I get to this part. Christopher Robin, who was still looking at the world with his chin in his hands, called out, "Pooh, yes," said Pooh. "When I'm, when, ah, Pooh, yes, Christopher Robin. I'm not going to do nothing any more. Never again," 
Well, not so much. They don't let you. Pooh waited for him to go on, but he was silent again. Yes, Christopher Robin, said Pooh helpfully. Pooh, when I'm, you know, when I'm not doing nothing, will you come up here sometimes? Just me? Yes, Pooh. Will you be here too? Yes, Pooh. I will be really. I promise I will be, Pooh. That's good," said Pooh. "Pooh, promise you won't forget about me ever, not even when I'm a hundred." Pooh thought for a little. "How old shall I be then?" "Ninety-nine." Pooh nodded. "I promise," he said. Still with his eyes on the world, Christopher Robin put out a hand and felt for Pooh's paw. "Pooh," said Christopher Robin earnestly. If I, ah,、uh, if I'm not quite, ah,、uh, he stopped and tried again. Pooh, whatever happens, you will understand, won't you? Understand what? Oh, nothing. He laughed and jumped to his feet. Come on. Where? Said Pooh. Anywhere. Said Christopher Robin. So they went off together. But wherever they go. And whatever happens to them on the way, in that enchanted place on the top of the forest, a little boy and his bear will always be playing. A. A. Milne. This day in history. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American stories. Great job on that, Greg. A. Milne's Latin translation of, Win- translation of Winnie the Pooh is the only Latin book to ever crack the New York Times bestseller list. The 1960 release stayed on the coveted list for 20 weeks, and ultimately demanded 21 printings, selling 125,000 copies. This accomplishment spoke in part to the book itself, which the Times called "quote the greatest book a dead language has ever known." But it is also evidence of Pooh's popularity. The adventures of this honey-loving bear have been translated into more than 50 languages, including Afrikaans, Czech, Finnish, and Yiddish. Greg, this、uh, this Disney sort of caricature simplification of Pooh. Talk about it a bit before we go to the break. Well, <clears throat> in Milne's creation.、Um Eeyore is is definitely there's basically two categories in Milne's world. There's the intellectuals, which is Owl, Eeyore, and um, and uh, uh, there's one other. There's a and then there's the kind of brain dead people, the the simpletons, which is Pooh, Piglet, and um somebody else. And so you have these dynamic ranges of people who think they're smart, or people who are. These animals that are sad and happy, but in Disney, take a look at any coloring book, any story, any movie. All of them are smiling. All of them have the same expression on their face. All of them have the same tone in their voice. Everything's perfect. Everything's great, and they're all the same. It's just boring. So they're homogenized. Yeah, essentially. Well, this is Lee Habib, and this is our American stories and the life of A. A. Milne and the life of Winnie the Pooh. Right after. The history of beards—that's what you get here at Our American Stories. You never know what you're going to get. I never know what I get when I walk in. More after this.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Our American Stories, and we like to talk to people from all walks of life. We're about to hear from a guy who has an interesting hobby. He's a black man who collects Ku Klux Klan robes. While hate groups like the Klan have dwindled from a population over a million in the 1920s to somewhere between 3,000 to 5,000 members across the entire country today, our guest became fascinated with what makes people like this tick at a very young age. Here's Jesse. You've probably seen Daryl Davis on TV. Welcome back. We are about to bring you an almost unbelievable story out into the open. Ask yourself, how willing would you be to make friends with someone who hates you because of your skin color? Well, that's exactly why the man you're about to meet caught our attention. He's the black guy known for his uncanny ability to convert KKK members into kind-hearted, everyday Americans such as yourself. Daryl flips Klansmen like he's flipping houses. And he always likes to keep a little trophy. They were given to me by active Klan members who left the organization. This is the robe of an Imperial Wizard. Okay, this is the, the top guy. And uh, blue or purple, your choice, designates the Imperial level. Again, this is a white cotton robe with blue adornments. I keep a lot of them locked up off-site. Um, but I would guess, you know, I, I got three recently. And I would guess maybe I have between 40, 42, 44. Now we'll get back to his robe collection soon enough, because the Daryl Davis story starts with music. Chuck Berry had a very profound impact on me. The man was a genius. You know, many people can say that they wrote a song. Many people can say that they played a song. But few people can claim that they invented a genre of music. And Chuck Berry certainly did that. We would not have rock and roll without Chuck Berry. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans Way back up in the woods among the evergreens There stood a log cabin made of earth and wood Where lived a country boy named Johnny B. Good Who never ever learned to read or write so well But he could play a guitar just like a ring and a bell Go, go! And uh, when I first uh, heard Chuck Berry, I fell in love with that music And when I saw him, I changed my whole career trajectory that I was on as a kid while Daryl Davis was discovering his love for music, rock and roll was breaking down racial barriers among white and black kids who are now beginning to dance with each other. The invention of rock and roll by people like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, uh, Fast Domino, Bo Diddley, and the popularization of it by people like Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Buddy Holly, Bill Haley, and the Comets. When white kids and black kids heard that new rhythm, that new beat, that boogie-woogie with a backbeat to it. They could not sit still. They bounced up out of their chairs, knocked the ropes over and the signs over, and the next thing you know, they were boogieing and dancing in the aisles together for the first time in the history of this country. Police would come in, shut down the show. 
So rock and roll had brought white youth and black youth together through music. The same thing that great civil rights activists like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and many other ones, black and white, were trying to achieve through their marches, through their demonstrations, their sit-ins, their boycotts, in efforts to bring white and black adults together. Chuck Berry and Elvis were achieving this through music. While rock and roll was bringing the country together, it was around this time that Daryl Davis had his first encounter with racism. When I was a kid, I had a racist incident while marching with the uh, Cub Scouts. I had people throwing uh, rocks and bottles at me, you know, white spectators. And I, I did not understand why I was the target. And then when racism was explained to me, I could not accept it. I'd never heard of racism, and I could not get my head around the idea that someone who had never spoken to me, someone who knew nothing about me or, or had ever seen me before, would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. And I formed a question at the age of 10 in 1968, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And I've been seeking that answer now for the next, you know, 49 years. And I, I bought books on black supremacy, white supremacy, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, looking for the answer in these books. And I couldn't find it. So in my adult life, I figured, well, who better to ask than someone who would join an organization that is reputed to believe that somebody else is inferior who does not look like them or believe as they believe based on the color of their skin or their religious beliefs. So I decided I would seek out Klan members and ask them to answer the question, and then I would get my answer. So Daryl set out on his lifetime quest and eventually set up a meeting with the Klan. He was the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. Now, a state leader is what's known as a grand dragon, which we would call a governor, oversees the entire state. Uh, and then the, the top guy, the national guy who oversees all the states, which we would call a president, that person is known as the imperial wizard. So the grand dragon, his name was Roger Kelly, and he went from grand dragon eventually to imperial wizard. He was the first one that I met and sat down with and had a conversation. Daryl met with the Klansmen who were dressed in full regalia, not knowing the person they were about to be interviewed by was a black man. Well, he showed up with his bodyguard, which is called a Grand Nighthawk. A Grand Nighthawk is the bodyguard to the Grand Dragon, like, a grand, uh, like an Imperial Nighthawk would be the bodyguard for the Imperial Wizard. So this Grand Nighthawk walked into the room first, and he was wearing military camouflage uh, fatigues, with the Mayok, the blood drop emblem right here, and uh, the initials KKK right here on his chest, uh, embroidered across his beret on his head were Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And on his hip, he had a, a semi-automatic handgun in a holster. He came in and he was followed right behind him by, uh, by Mr. Kelly, the Grand Dragon, in a dark blue suit and tie. When the Nighthawk entered the room and turned the corner and saw me, he just froze. And Mr. Kelly bumped into his back because the guy had stopped short. And they stumbled and regained their balance looking all around the room. And I knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, you know, either the desk clerk, you know, gave them the wrong room number or this was a setup. This is an ambush. So I went like this to display my hands, nothing in them. And I stood up 
and I approached him and I said, hi, Mr. Kelly, my name is Daryl Davis, come on in. He, both he and the night hawk, shook my hand. So far, so good, and they both came in. When we come back, Daryl Davis meets with the Ku Klux Klan. This is Our American Stories. To Jesse's story, his segment with Daryl Davis, the black dude who collects KKK robes. Now, the meeting began as you might suspect a Klansman surprise black guy meeting to go. They insulted our friend Daryl here to his face. Well, we, you know, we began you know, talking back and forth. Uh, he let me know that um, I was inferior because I was black. And I was expecting stuff like that because, you know, I read all these books on the Klan already, so I knew the mentality. But I wanted you know, to draw everything out of him to find out, you know, how can he hate me when he doesn't even know me and hasn't even given me a chance to express myself and see if he still has those feelings. I asked him to have a seat. He sat down. He asked me for some identification, and I gave that to him. And then we uh, proceeded with this uh, interview. Now, I had a bag beside me, and in my bag, I had a copy of the Bible, because the Ku Klux Klan claims to be a Christian organization, and they also claim that the Bible preaches racial separation. Now, in my reading of the Bible, I'd never seen that in there, so I wanted to be able to pull out my Bible and say, here, please show me chapter and verse, where it says, blacks and whites must be separate. Then, there was a moment of tension. A little later on in the interview, there was kind of a strange noise in the room, and we all jumped. And I just knew that Mr. Kelly had made the noise, because I didn't make it. And because I could not discern what the noise was, I perceived it to be ominous and threatening. And plus, I was hearing that voice in my head, Daryl, don't fool with Roger Roger Kelly, he'll kill you, kind of thing. And I was ready to attack. You know, my eyes had locked with his eyes, because I'm looking at him like, What did you just do? I didn't say that, but my eyes were speaking to him. His eyes had locked with mine, and I could read the expression in his eyes, which were saying to me, what did you just do? And the Nighthawk had his hand on his gun, looking back and forth between the two of us, like, what did either one of you all just do? The ice in the bucket had melted, and the cans of soda shifted, and that's what made the noise. And then we all began laughing at how ignorant we all had been. (laughs) But the teaching moment was this. All because some foreign, and underscore highlight the word foreign, entity of which we were ignorant, that being the bucket of ice and cans of soda, entered into our little comfort zone via the noise that it made, we became fearful and accusatory of one another. So the lesson learned is ignorance breeds fear. If you don't keep that fear in check, that fear will will breed hatred because we hate those things that frighten us. If you don't keep that hatred in check, that hatred will breed destruction. What happens next between Daryl Davis and the Klansmen is incredible. We became, you know, the best of friends. 
While it might be hard for us to understand how a black guy becomes friends with another guy who's proud and outspoken of his affiliation with the Ku Klux Klan, it helps to understand more about how Daryl Davis was raised. Uh, my parents were U.S. Foreign Service, so I spent a lot of time, you know, overseas in various countries around the world uh, with, you know, as an American embassy brat. And today, as a professional musician, I travel all over this country and around the world. If you combine my travels as a child with now my travels as an adult, I've been in 53 different countries on six continents. Because I was exposed early on to many, many different cultures, ethnicities, nationalities, traditions, colors, religions, etc. And all of that helped shape who I've become. And I saw people from all over the world getting along with each other. When I was in grade school overseas, you know, I'd be over there for two years and come back home, be here for a few months or a year, and then go back to another country. When I was a kid in, this, in the 1960s in, in uh, elementary school, my classes were filled with other kids from Nigeria, Italy, Japan, Russia, France, Germany. Anybody who had an embassy in those countries, all of their kids, we all went to the same school. And that's how I grew up. If you were to peep your head into my classroom door, you would say, that looks like a United Nations of little kids. That scenario was not here, back here in my own country, in the U.S. When I would return, I would either be in newly integrated or still segregated schools that had not quite gotten there yet. So I was either surrounded by all black people or black and white people. Today, when you walk into a, a uh, school classroom, you see what I saw. But back then, I was living 12 to 15 years ahead of my time. While Daryl might continue to be 12 to 15 years ahead of his time, even he became the target of Black Lives Matter. In his Netflix documentary called Accidental Courtesy, Daryl is confronted by a young BLM activist. Time going into people's houses that don't love you, a house where they want to throw you under the basement. So you believe that nobody can change? No, you, I believe you believe the wrong people can change. What do you mean the wrong people can change? White supremacists can't change. You don't believe they can change? White, no, white supremacists can't change. But I can change your mind because you look like me. You ain't doing nothing but collecting something that's going to build your own credibility. You're nothing but a pimp in a pulpit. And you're nothing but ignorant. Daryl later said that he befriended that young BLM activist, and that they came to an understanding. In the same way that Daryl brings understanding to so many others, it all started with that simple question that came to him at the age of 10. How can you hate me if you don't even know me? One of my very favorite quotes of all time is um, by Mark Twain. It's called the travel quote. And Mark Twain says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. We'd like to close our look into the life of Daryl Davis on a note that has absolutely nothing to do with race. While he's passionate about bringing people together, it's not the only aspect of what makes Daryl Davis an interesting person. He shared with us a fond childhood memory of the time he crossed paths with Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Bruce Springsteen, all on the same day. Well, Chuck Berry was coming to uh, Coalfield House at University of Maryland, the sports arena there. 
It was going to be Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, of course, I got down there super early, hoping I would, you know, be able to sneak in and maybe meet him during sound check or rehearsal. And because I knew that the promoter had to supply a uh, backing band for him, so the concert uh, would not begin till like about 8 p.m. that evening. And I was a kid. I got a ride down there, and um, around noontime, you know, like eight hours before showtime. And the hangar doors were open. People were like bringing in equipment and speakers and lights and things like that. I, I just walked on in. Nobody stopped me. Um, so I said, you know, there was no security there at that particular time. And so I just hung out back there, stayed out of everybody's way. Uh, the band came, and I moved over near the stage where the band was, figuring that when Chuck comes for this sound check, you know, I'll get to see my idol and meet him or whatever. And the band was very nervous. Uh, they'd never worked with Chuck Berry before. They were down from New Jersey to, uh, to play for him. And their sound check was at 2 o'clock. So they assumed that he would be there around 2 o'clock. Well, 2 o'clock rolled around and no Chuck Berry. <laughs> and uh, they even got more nervous. And so they went on stage. They did their sound check. They ran through some Chuck Berry songs. And they sounded fantastic. And, uh, you know, the hours ticked by and still no Chuck Berry. And so um, they went on at the, you know, at the beginning of the show, you know, did a short set. And then uh, Jerry Lee Lewis you know, came and I got to meet him. And uh, he came on and did his thing, still no Chuck Berry. And about, about 15 minutes or so before uh, Jerry Lee finished, in walked Chuck Berry through the backstage door. He came in just by himself, no guitar, nothing. And he walked right by me and I froze. I thought, oh, you know, because, you know, it was like total shock. He went right by me, and there was somebody standing down the hallway, and he stopped and spoke with that person. I don't know what he said, but in retrospect, I do. That person pointed further down the hallway to a door, and Chuck, you know, went down and went inside that door. And then a few minutes later, he came back out, went right back by me again, back outside the backstage door, and then he returned with his guitar. And so, in retrospect, what happened was he went down to the promoter's office to get paid up front, and then he went and got his guitar. And he doesn't bring his guitar in until he, until he has money. So, um, brought his guitar in, and then, you know, I was standing over there near where the band was. He came over, and um, the band leader walked up to him. He's like taking his guitar out of the case and said, Hi, you know, my name is Bruce Springsteen. We're your, you know, we're your backup band. We thought you were going to be here this afternoon. Just said, no, you know, just totally oblivious. And um, he said, uh, we ran through some of your songs. I, I think everything should be okay. Do you know which ones you know, you're going to play tonight? And Chuck said something to the effect of, I think I'll play some Chuck Berry. <laughs> and he went on stage. The band went on right after him. And he just like, you know, went right into it. No key, no count off, nothing. And the band was right there with him. And that just kind of like just blew my mind. And that is the story of the one and only Daryl Davis. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our Hillsdale interns this year were sent 
on a winding, epic road trip through the American South. They went on big boats, they ate clams. Monty was almost shutting a record store for the night, which actually would have made him quite happy. They also went to the top of Lookout Mountain, where the famous Rock City Gardens were located. And the Americans know Rock City for its natural beauty, but behind that beauty lies an interesting story about love and entrepreneurship. Here's Monty and Rock City Inc. CEO Bill Shapin with the story of Rock City. At the top of a mountain straddling the border of Georgia and Tennessee, the distant sound of a waterfall, the rustling of the leaves, families enjoying a day out, and the plucking of a banjo are carried upon fresh southern winds. Welcome to Rock City Gardens, the staple destination of Lookout Mountain that has welcomed generations of visitors to its grounds. Rock City is the lasting impact of a single family who have dedicated their lives to improving the beautiful landscape that is Rock City Gardens. CEO Bill Shapin continues that family legacy today. But there's more to the story than just the incredible... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. View. The story of Rock City is one of ingenious entrepreneurship and the devoted love of a husband to his wife. Garnet Carter's wife. So Garnet's life began up on the north end of Lookout Mountain, and the Spanish-American War took place, and men were training at Fort Oglethorpe, and Uncle Garnet sold souvenirs of Chattanooga and Lookout Mountain to the soldiers. Garnet continued to uh, grow, and his, his dad had a business called the Carter Company. And Garnet Carter and his brother Paul were salesmen. And they drove wagons with goods on the back of the wagons. Uncle Paul took the route all the way up to Cincinnati and Uncle Garnet took the routes all the way over to Jackson, Tennessee. And Jackson, Tennessee is where Garnet met the love of his life, Frida Uttermullen. And he brought her back to Lookout Mountain. Frida was the daughter of German immigrant Charles F. Uttermullen, a classically trained violinist who was first chair for Charles Lisk and later the director of the Berlin Opera before immigrating to the United States. Frida and Garnet were married in the 1910s, and Garnet continued to expand and build upon his investments, working closely with pre-existing hotels on Lookout Mountain, and then in the 1920s, something happened. The Florida real estate boom. Wanting to get in on the action that was occurring down south of him, Garnett, along with others, bought the land that would later become Rock City with the intent of turning it into a golf course and resort. And Frida would have the biggest influence upon this land. Garnett and his dad and another man developed this real estate and it was a resort development and called it Fairyland. And Fairyland was named because of Frida's love of European folklore. And she named all the roads. Fleetwood Drive, who was a king of the gnomes, and Oberon Trail, 
One road was named Hardy Road, and Hardy was the name of the mayor of Chattanooga. So Uncle Garnet knew how to play politics. But Garnet kept these 15 acres for Frida to develop her gardens. And he built this home and Frida named the home Carter Cliffs. Frida was really taking the role of the woman behind the successful man who made it necessary. <laughs> but actually she was the inspiration of Rock City Gardens. And she designed the trail and the entire trail is called the Enchanted Trail because of Frida's love for folklore. Being German, she had a love and fascination with gnomes. And so she populated her garden with gnomes. And she named these features along the trail, Gnomes Overpass, Goblins Underpass, and other fairy tale themed names. But there were still hotels on Lookout Mountain, so people were coming as they had ever since the first hotels were built up here. And they would come to Rock City and they would visit, but just like today, they were litter bugs. So they'd bring their picnics over here that had been prepared at the hotel and they would leave trash. So Uncle Garnet said, well, by golly, they're coming to my house and my yard I'm gonna build a wall around it. I'm gonna start charging admission. So that's what he did. And he built this little gatehouse out at the end of the driveway. And Frida sold souvenirs and gingerbread with lemon sauce. Then as Garnet made money, he continued to reinvest in the business. And in 1936, he said, you know, I'm gonna advertise and I'm gonna paint barns. And if the beautiful landscape put Rock City on the map, the barn painting campaign is what chiseled Rock City into the edifice of roadside Americana history. He hired a young man named Clark Byers, and Clark and Uncle Garnet drove away from Chattanooga on US Highway 41, and they found a barn right on the highway before you got into Chattanooga. And he said, we're gonna paint that one. And it said, Sea Rock City, high atop Lookout Mountain. And then they went in the other direction and they painted barns. Uncle Garnet was very specific on which barn to paint. It had to be after the end of a long straightaway and in a curve. So he selected the barns and then gave Clark lots of paint and lots of postcards. And Clark would go out and select a barn and draw a little picture of it. And when he ran out of money and ran out of paint, he would call Uncle Garnet and ask him for more of each. And Uncle Garnet would send it. In the late 40s, Clark had painted over 900 barns from Florida to Michigan, from Texas to Virginia, from Missouri to North Carolina. And they, were emblazoned with messages, Sea Rock City, enjoy Lover's Leap, um, even old grouches like Fairyland Caverns. So that came in the early 50s. So all roads lead to Rock City. Um, and my favorite is Sea Rock City, World's Eighth Wonder. So that continued and then my dad came to work with Uncle Garnet 
1947 after having served in World War II in the U.S. Army Air Corps. And they decided, because the roads were getting consolidated, that they needed to get into building signs because it was easier, easier to climb a sign than it was to climb onto the roof of a barn. So Rock City became one of the largest sign companies in the Southeast. Garnet Carter passed away in 1954, but his impact on Rock City continues to live on today. It's generational, and so is the park experience, as Bill Shapin knows firsthand. Today, it would be called conservation. And the unique thing about what they did is they conserved these geological formations that had been written about since before the Civil War, but made them accessible to people from all over the world, from all ages, races, and creeds to enjoy what we say God created and man enhanced. Since we took over in 1984, we have tried making areas of Rock City Gardens accessible because we want everybody, no matter their age, to be able to enjoy it. It's a multi-generational experience that Garnet and Frida wanted the world to come and visit. So over half of our visitors have been here before and they come back with their children as they had been brought by their parents. But the experience is not the only thing that continues to live on. So does the spirit that was so central to Garnet Carter's success and continued success of Rock City. Bill Shapin and Rock City's partners are continuing that legacy today. And when we come back, more of the story of Rock City here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and we return to the story of Rock City Gardens. And here's Monty and Rock City, Inc. CEO Bill Shapin to tell us more about this beautiful place and its story. Rock City and the work of Garnet Carter and his family embodies what it means to be dedicated. But it also embodies the American spirit of open entrepreneurship and business ownership that continues today. And according to Bill Shapin, that's hardly a coincidence. I think Garnet Carter's dream was to create a place to honor his wife that would be enjoyed by people in perpetuity. And the reason he developed a business around it is because of his love for free enterprise and the American system of family-owned businesses. Most businesses in America are small businesses. I think he would be amazed to know that Rock City has expanded. But free enterprise and the idea of making a profit to reinvest in your business is what Uncle Garnet did. But Garnet was not the only Carter to have an impact on Lookout Mountain and Chattanooga. Garnet's brother Paul also did. Uncle Garnet and Uncle Paul were generous people in each of their cases, they were thinking of the next generation and generations to come. 
Paul developed the area at the highest point of Lookout Mountain and built a hotel called the Castle in the Clouds. He donated it to Covenant College in 1963. And the head of development there was a man named Alan Dubel. And Alan would go see Uncle Paul to let him know how the college was progressing. His last visit with Uncle Paul, he went down there and he had this large painting behind him of Covenant College. And Uncle Paul said to Mr. Dubel, why do you keep coming down here? He said, well, we want to tell you the story of the success of the college. And Uncle Paul said, don't you understand? That was the worst business decision I ever made in my life. I went bankrupt, my friends invested a lot of money, and they all lost it. All we wanted to do was build a hotel and invite people to come to Lookout Mountain to experience what I had done when I grew up. And Alan Dubel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mr. Dubel said, well, Mr. Carter, now people don't come for two or three days or a week. They're here for four years. They learned to love Chattanooga and many of those students have graduated and become business leaders in the town that you love. And Uncle Paul, with a tear in his eye, said, young man, you have made an old man's dream come true. And Rock City today continues to be family owned and operated. An amazing feat considering 70% of family-run businesses fail by the second generation and 88% do by the third. You know, there are some wonderful attractions in the Southern Highlands attractions that have taken a path to the not-for-profit world. Chimney Rock Park, after having been run and managed by three generations of family, decided that it was time for them to sell to the state, and so it's now a state park. We discussed some things like that with my children and with management, and we have decided that, as I've mentioned, free enterprise and the entrepreneurial mission of creating a profit and investing in the people, and that's where we rise to the top. But investing in the people doesn't just mean investing in the guests who visit Rock City. What it also means is investing in the people who work there too, even if it's just for a summer or a first job. We have a great mission and it is to create memories worth repeating for our guests and our partners the people who work here. And that's why customer service is such a big part of our culture and our mission. Rock City hires over 300 people in a year who get an opportunity to come to work at Rock City Gardens to work with a team leader who has a mission of creating memories worth repeating. Their next job may be the team leader or the manager 
But if it's not here at Rock City, they will be the best partner for the next business to whom they go. They have been trained to be entrepreneurs, to have, be motivated, and we have helped them. And the fostering of a productive, customer-service-minded work environment has led them to become a leader in Chattanooga and Lookout Mountain Tourism for years. But since inheriting the business, Bill Shapin has also heavily invested in it on an experiential level, as seen in the new ice cream chain, Clumpy's. But there is something else that Bill is investing in that he believes helps everyone, even his competitors, the free market. I coined a phrase in 1989. Google says it was in 2002, but it wasn't, and it is mine, and it is coopetition. We in Chattanooga in 1989, when I was head of the Convention and Visitors Bureau, decided that we needed to cooperate to get people to come to Chattanooga. And so we pooled our advertising money with Ruby Falls, Rock City, and some smaller organizations so that we could go to Atlanta and advertise Chattanooga as a destination. So we cooperated. But for Rock City and Ruby Falls, I-75 and the roads that lead to Chattanooga, we compete. And for the last nine of 10 years, Rock City Gardens has achieved the most outstanding guest service award in the Southern Highlands attractions. We've got to work to bring more people to town, but the reason our market share is growing at Rock City is because we compete and we provide the highest level of service of any attraction in the region. And what the economy now is doing is really becoming an experiential economy. People want to enjoy the view of seven states, the food at Cafe 7, the geode mining experience that we have. People are buying experiences, whether it's entertainment through music or dining with food, it's experiential. But according to Bill, there's something more than that that he owes his family's continued amazing success to. I think one of the greatest reasons to run and manage Rock City Gardens and to have expanded into other hospitality businesses. But for this core business, the legacy of the attraction and the idea that we are stewards for just a short period of time, that it will roll over to someone else to have the responsibility. We do want not to leave no trace. We want to leave a trace. We want to leave it better than it was when we got it. And I think that that has been our experience with Sea Rock City Incorporated, which was able to purchase Rock City Gardens and the sign business from 
my dad and my siblings with the help of other investors and now the ownership has been consolidated back to the family and I as the leader of the organization realize that it's not going to be mine for much longer and I need to make sure that it's better than it was when we bought it from my dad who made sure that it was better than it was when he bought it from Uncle Garnet, and Uncle Garnet made sure that it was better than it was when no one was truly caring for it. And so stewardship, not ownership, is the key to making a family business successful for generations. I may be third or fourth generation working here at Rock City, but God created this place when he created the earth and it has changed over millennia, but for the last 85 years, it has been enhanced. And great job on that, Monty, and a special thanks to Bill Shapin for being so gracious with his time and inviting us into his home to speak. And by the way, Rock City is a huge swath of natural beauty sporting a view of seven states from the Lover's Leap Cliff and all-year-round gardens. It's a truly beautiful spot. Take the family. Garnet Carter's story, Bill Shapin's story, Rock City's story, here on Our American Story. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.